afternoon. You are listening to Dawnland Signals on WERU-FM. Dawnland Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change here in the Dawnland. We explore topics such as restorative justice, restorative practices, decolonization, cultural revival, and more. Our guests are people involved in aspects of truth, healing, and change work. This program is offered in an effort to share, inspire, and inform. Dominic Signals is a collaboration of Wabanaki Reach and WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard. Good afternoon. I'm your co-host, Esther Ann. Decolonization is a word that is being used more often as people are realizing the effects of colonialism on the entire country. And we're so excited today to be talking about this process of decolonization with museums, which are institutions that have um, created a lot of harm in tribal communities in particular. Um, so we have two special guests with us today, but before I welcome our guests, we'll have Maria do a land appreciation. Thank you, Esther. Let's just take a moment to pause and to acknowledge the land beneath our feet. Wabanaki, the land of the first light, the dawn land, land that has known Wabanaki ancestors, the tallest trees and the oldest rivers, land that has known peace and conflict, land that has nourished us and sustained us since time immemorial. We acknowledge the indigenous peoples of this land, Wabanaki, the Haskell Penobscot, Micmac, Maliseet, and Abenaki. And we give thanks to your stewardship and resilience. All my relations, we are broadcasting from WERU Studio in Blue Hill, Alamusic, Wabanaki. Gee, only one Maria. <clears throat> so, I'm so excited today to be talking with two special guests um, from the Abbey Museum. We have uh, Nolan Altvader, who's on the board of Wabanaki Reach and has brought so much richness to our organization and our programming. And with him is Julia Gray, who has been with the Abbey for a long time in different capacities and is still there today. So she I'm excited for both of them. Julia can give us some sort of like a historical look at the Abbey, its origins and, and all the transformations they have gone through over the years. Um, but first I wanna start with Nolan and just have him introduce himself and tell us what your role is there at the Abbey now. Gee, Willie Van Esther. Uh... My name is Nolan Altvader and I'm a Passamaquoddy citizen from Zebaig and I'm currently living in Manisketic, which is the clam digging place or what the tourists know as Bar Harbor. Um, and I am the curator of education at the Abbey Museum. And uh, thank you for inviting me to speak today with Julia. I'm excited for our conversation. And Julia, introduce yourself. 
Sure. So I'm Julia Gray. Um, I've been connected with the Abbey since 2000 on staff for uh, about 17 and a half years um, and through some consulting work and now as a member of the Board of Trustees. Um, and in my and I, my current uh, day job is as executive director of the Wilson Museum in Castine, Maine, which is a museum that's just beginning <laughs> the journey that the Abbey has been on for for a number of years. So, um, and I am coming here to you today from what's now Orland, Maine, on the banks of the Naramusic River, um, within the the traditional territory of the Penobscot Nation along the Penobscot Penobscot River watershed. Great. Now, Julia, can you, let, let's start with you since you've been with the Abbey for, I know, I can't, I think you said 17 years. So yeah, 20, 20 some, 20 some in varying capacities. Yeah. You want to start um, telling us like of your journey through uh, with the Abbey and, and how sure. you started and. Sure. So I originally started the Abbey in 2000 when the um, new downtown Bar Harbor facility was being built, um, and there was a lot of really exciting work happening to um, create new exhibitions. Uh, my primary job was to, to inventory and move the collections, and um, what we call what museums call collections, the Wabanaki cultural heritage um, that was that was being held by the museum from the original museum in the AK National Park to the downtown location, um, and. Museum had been around since 1928, um, founded very much in the traditional model of of uh, being of keeping indigenous people in the past. It was it was an the the was a focus on archaeology. The founder Robert Abbey, um, who exists, who was spending his summers in Bar Harbor um, at the same time as the Wabanaki encampments were still were still happening on a on a regular basis, um, didn't introduce any connection between the archaeological material that he was exhibiting and the Wabanaki people that were there at the time. So kind of normal that way. Um, and when I came on board, um, there was certainly some really good work in collaborating with Wabanaki people, primarily with a focus on exhibits and collections. So the, the some of you may remember the first exhibit that we had at the downtown museum was the Four Mollies Women of the Dawn. And uh, Buddy McBride, the guest curator of that, had, had set up a really a wonderful group of Wabanaki women who were advisors for that exhibit. So that was kind of the early model of how museums work with Indigenous people is in this kind of advisory functions. You would create advisory groups to help guide you primarily, again, around exhibits, collections, programming, that sort of thing. Um, and that work was, um, it was, it had a significant impact on what the museum was doing. Um, but it was also limited and because it was really focusing on kind of that public facing side of things. And it was really dependent on individual relationships. And that's something that I have really seen as one of the key things and that in the in the transformation or the ongoing, it's certainly still ongoing transformation is how do you take individual relationships which are incredibly important to starting collaboration because people don't trust you as an individual. It's unlikely that they're gonna to wanna to commit their knowledge and their time and so on. But how do you make that, how do you institutionalize that? So that when an individual moves on to another career or whatever, that that isn't lost um, because we saw a lot of that in that first 10 years or so that I was at the Abbey of, of when, a, when a staff member who had these strong relationships moved on, it was difficult to maintain those relationships because it hadn't been, you know, it hadn't been extended to kind of the organization. It was very personal. Um, and when the leadership that was there when I started retired, um, we had a pretty big hiccup. That's kind of a gentle word for it. There was a, a, a hiring decision made for a new leader who was not a good fit with um, 
certainly not with where the where the Abbey is today. Um, and there were some serious breakdowns in relationships um, with Wabanaki individuals and communities. Um, I think perhaps one of the one of the one of the reasons we made it out the other side was because Darren Ranko really stuck with us and like pushed us to continue to do the good work even as relationships were breaking down. Um, and then coming out the other side of that, the work really began in earnest to think what is it what does it look like to do decolonizing work at a museum across across all facets of the operation because it's I mean it's certainly it's certainly not easy to do the work around exhibits and collections and programs, but that's but it's it's not as hard as it is to start doing it organization wide and and especially when you tackle things like governance um, who is actually has the power to make decisions about the organization how are you how what does your funding look like is that consistent with decolonizing and indigenous values um, and so that work continues now um, and is we won't ever I don't know don't know that it'll ever be done and it will probably always be changing as we understand uh, what we've done wrong, what we've done right, how we can do better. Um, and we'll hit bumps and hopefully um, as the again, because I, I have been, I've been grateful to see that with a lot of um, recent changes in leadership that some of that work to really institutionalize those relationships and not institutionalize sounds like putting you in an institution, but to really make those an or, organizational um, change has is seeming to hold up through a lot of challenges. So it's exciting to see that. Um, but it's also still a lot of work going on. Thank you, Julia. Um, I'm wondering if Nolan, maybe you could um, talk about uh, a definition of decolonization. So we're having this, this conversation about decolonization. I just want to make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page in terms of understanding what do we mean when we say decolonization? It's almost like you read my mind. That's exactly what I was actually going to interject and sort of take a step back and um, sort of just ground, you know, what even is decolonization? You know, Esther had mentioned that that um, sort of becoming a catchphrase for a lot of organizations to um, promote the their initiatives. And I think it is important to really first, you know, ground an understanding of what is decolonization. And <clears throat> Whereas it can be a very um, complex topic, I think sort of trying to have a concise definition of it is, you know, it's not about going backwards to a time pre-colonization, you know, before colonization uh, occurred. It's more of a process, a constant process of undoing the colonial violences that the indigenous peoples all around the globe continue to face today and that will be inextricably connected to their geographies and land in which that they identify with and it's about supporting their pathways and inherent rights to self-determination and sovereignty in whatever capacities that will look like whether it is supporting land back initiatives and helping reestablish um, their traditional relationships to the land so that they can be stewards of the relationships to their um, geographies. Um, for museums, such as the Abbey, it can look like uh, repatriating objects or creating exhibits with and for the Wabanaki communities where that they have the um, 
they have the determination over the narrative that is being uh, told here within our exhibit spaces. So thank you for asking that question, Maria. I think that's very important to ground ourselves in of what decolonization looks like as it's sort of being really coined. Um, and I think it's important to not confuse it for other social justice movements. And I don't mean to get too off topic here, but I think that this is very, especially important with all of the conversations going around um, in the Supreme Court with uh, Indigenous child welfare. It's important to recognize that um, decolonization and uh, in, in, in terms of uh, Indigenous peoples that we are not a race, that we are a um, a sovereign political body with our own rights to determine our destinies and our futures. And I guess with that, in terms of museum spaces, how can we sort of reimagine what a um, what a museum is? And uh, how can how can a museum be the site of indigenous sovereignty and self-determination? And I think that's the question that Abbey, the Abbey Museum is um, repeatedly asking itself at all levels from the exhibits to internal, um, to its internal function is with how the staff works together and the, the Wabanaki Council that we have here. Um, and I guess with that, like even just recognizing, you know, we still call ourselves the Abbey Museum and that, I, and that, is, that is a conversation that I am trying to sort of, um, bring up more and more of like, you know, there is like the, the, the importance of names within indigenous communities and yet we're still calling ourselves the Abbey Museum after a white anthropologist whose work was on quote unquote, a vanishing race. So as Julia said, there's a lot of work to be done, but again, sort of the, um, the organization as a whole is constantly asking how can we reimagine this space to support self-determination and um, Wabanaki sovereignty. Thank you. Um, when, when was it that the museum started having these conversations in earnest about decolonization? And, did, and was it called decolonization at the time that you were having these, uh, began having these conversations? So the, the term decolonization really came, started being used kind of around 2009 or so with with uh, a leadership transition um and uh because there in part i think because there was work going on in the broader museum field the amy lone trees work had had started to get gain some attention and so the um awareness started to come to us and i think i would i i my recollections are a little bit fuzzy but again i would expect that because we were having these really these conversations with folks like darren um, and others that that the work that was happening in academia around decolonization was probably also trying to introduce that term and that concept. Um, and I like that that Nolan mentioned that decolonizing work is different from other social justice work, um, and that it's especially important in museums um, because the way that museums have um, caused harm and had relationships with indigenous people is very different from the way it has with, especially in North America, what we call North America today, especially that relationship is very different from the way, from the relationship with other um, communities that are 
have are have relationships with museums. So I think that 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 special relationship, which has also created a special level type of, of harm that museums do, I think is important to recognize when doing this work that it isn't part of DEAI work. It is it's a very different process with uh, a different set of challenges and opportunities. I I also wonder how. Um, it interacts or, or complements or goes with the land back movement because you know we know land back is not just about physical land ownership um, it's about ceremonies and food sovereignty and all of these and I seem to remember you know that there was a push to just have all like Smithsonian all these museums have items just repatriated and just returned um, but it seems like the Abbey is uh, trying to maybe creating a different model to be a, more of service and to keep the institution and collections and I could be wrong, but what, what would you say about that, Nolan? Um, <clears throat> coming from a personal perspective, you know, obviously I recognize that, you know, the Abbey as a whole has accountability as a um, a museum to be accountable to the Wabanaki tribes, but then I also recognize my own accountability as a Passamaquoddy citizen. So sort of recognizing, you know, like trying to find ways to um, trying to find ways to make the initiatives here more public facing. Um, especially when it comes to like this idea of uh, repatriations or rematriations and um, supporting the revitalization of those traditional relationships to the land, you know, not just again, like giving the land back or giving objects back. And um, I think in, in that's an area that, that I feel like needs a lot of improvement is generating that more community facing elements um, from, I guess, speaking from an education perspective, because um, that's sort of my, uh, my background here. And um, as the curator of education, just recognizing, like, we want both, you know, we want all students to question the knowledge they're receiving from your white stream public schools, but we also want to give Wabanaki youth access to traditional knowledges to show other ways of knowing and being, you know. And I think that um, we do do that in some modalities with our with our student art show that we do, and providing both the materials and space for Indigenous youth to show their imaginations. Um, and I must say, like every year, I'm always just like baffled by the creations that they come up with. Um, but I feel like there's so much to be done more in terms of uh, community facing events. And I think a key part of that is um, finding ways to hire more indigenous people within the actual staff here to continue to build relationships within the community and find out how we can use our resources and our spaces to help um, to help Native youth, you know, have more uh, opportunities to connect to your, um, to community knowledge, 
for for uh, communities to have the opportunities to um, view anything in our tour in, in our collections. Um, so just finding more capacities to be to be community facing um, in light of of course being in such you know being in Bar Harbor where um, there's such an influx of tourists who may come with a particular perspective on indigenous people because that is a reality that um, that the museum works through but again I feel like there's so much opportunity to be more public facing and I'm, I'm hoping that is where um, our initiatives can can continue to grow more towards that and reimagining you know what what is a museum like not confining to ourselves to that you know Eurocentric understanding of the museums, but completely reimagining um, a museum as a whole and seeing what that looks like. And again, it's a constant process of um, doing decolonial work and, and reflection and learning and, and continuing to build relationships with the Wabanaki communities. So the name changes seems inevitable part of that, right? Changing the name of the, and that must be more complicated than just a name change, right? Yeah, yeah, because it's true. Like, like we know how important names are, like, and how, and not just from like a narrative perspective of how people view the space, but even how our workers here view ourselves, like as an employee of the Abbey Museum, like it, it just like names are so powerful. Like there's so much in a name and I feel like you know, having that name change to a more, something that's reflective more of an, uh, a Wabanaki worldview. And again, that sort of brings in, um, brings in conversations about, you know, recognizing that each tribe has their own language. Um, so just like trying to find um, consensus on a name that is reflective of the Wabanaki people. But I think that is, yeah, very important in terms of not how people view this, view this space, but also how even the staff here views ourselves as working for, for a museum. Anything you wanna add, Julia? Uh, yeah, I think that, that one, of, one of the things that I, that I have think about when I think about what is, it, what is the, the equivalent, or what is the role of, of museums or museum-like entities in the land back movement or in general, I mean, it, it's, it's a lot of issues about sovereignty and, and power over decisions and power, you know, not power, but can, you know, that, that idea of what does sovereignty mean when it comes to something like a museum, like institution. Uh, and I am constantly uh, inspired and awed by work that similar type organizations are doing within communities um, and, and looking to, some call themselves tribal museums, some call themselves community centers, cultural centers, uh, but recognizing that there's really powerful and wonderful work being done by indigenous people in indigenous communities to do some of the work that we that museums have done traditionally uh, in terms of uh, preserving and interpreting and exhibiting and but they do it in a way that's so much more community driven and community engaged because there's a co-creation process and that uh, historical you know objects are used as as you know, in, in community as something that you can work with and learn from and recreate and um, touch. And and I think about a, a good chunk of my time at the Abbey was working with the collections and I get to spend lots of time in personal contact with these incredible Wabanaki 
cultural objects. Um, and to be able to have that experience be more embedded in the communities is something that I think could be a really good outcome of the what have, these collections that museums have created uh, over the over the decades and centuries. And again, I think looking to what's happening within communities with within tribal museums and tribal cultural organizations is really inspiring. And and in Wabanaki country, that needs to, I think that needs to continue to be an important part of the process at the Abbey is how do we um, truly engage with and be inspired by and uh, collaborate with those those organizations within the communities. Now, this might be a little off track, but I, I, I want to um, talk about the Main State Museum just for a second. And as I understand it, and I'm looking for clarification here, as I understand it, there are things that belong to Wabanaki people that are, are kept there and that we don't have access to. Is that true? Does anybody know? Anyone, even Maria or Julia? Okay, go ahead. I, I, there have certainly been um, challenges over the years and you know, in, until relatively recently with um, the repatriation process at the Main State Museum with access and and decision making over over collections and exhibits. Um, I don't know a whole lot about where that stands right now. I know there has been some progress. Um, there have been um, there's at, at least I, there was was at one point and relatively recently I think at least one Wabanaki person on the the equivalent of a board of trustees that the Main State Museum has. It's a state state kind of um, organization, but it's definitely been an ongoing challenge. Um, and again, I think there are some people, again, this is the things where you have individuals at the Main State Museum who have done really wonderful work working with Wabanaki folks. Um, and then you have other individuals that haven't done so great and have done really poorly. Um, so I think that they're certainly an, an organization that's in, hopefully will continue to be in transformation. And there's the, the added complication that they are a fed, they are a state government entity. Um, and so that adds both the challenges that the Wabanaki have with, this, with the state of Maine um, and uh, has, you know, historical complications has, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's, it is, it is challenging. It is complicated. I know that, I know that there are some people that are trying to do better, but it's definitely been an ongoing challenge. Uh, yeah. Hopefully they can take a a lesson out of your playbook. <laughs> Were you going to add anything, Nolan? Yeah, it's just sort of more in that um, the progress that's being made in that area. Because, like, when it comes to not just the Wabanaki tribes, but with with indigenous tribes around the globe, like one of the a big impact of settler colonialism is that you know we have we have quote unquote. Uh, collection materials like all spread out through through the world just with how the impact of globalization and um capitalism has had on our cultural materials and i will say in light of that i feel like the the passamaquoddy and penobscot tribes uh are actually setting precedent for um initiatives in finding ways to build sovereignty for the tribes to have to own those materials that may be in other areas and 
that the way that that is unfolding is the uh, Donald Sakatoma, the Passamaquoddy Tribal Historic Preservation Officer, as well as um, James Francis, the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Penobscot Nation, they have been working um, in collaboration with a, um, a attorney who specializes in, um, they call it indigenous intellectual and cultural property law. And through that collaboration, they have developed these labels called TEK labels or traditional knowledge labels. And for just sort of like a case study of how these labels work, the Passamaquoddy tribe has um, some wax cylinder recordings that were done by um, a anthropologist, uh, Jesse Walter Fuchs. And, you know, he was a salvage researcher. He just came into the community, took these recordings, didn't take really the names of anybody who was singing or not, and then just brought them back to the institution that he was affiliated and stored them in their archives. And then that sort of got um, then trickled down and disseminated into the Library of Congress. And through this collaboration with um, her name's Jane Austen at the University of, uh, of New York, they developed these labels that in the metadata of the systems of the Library of Congress, they were interwoven within within the coding in that and what the traditional law traditional knowledge labels are is they are developed specifically by the tribal nations that um for an example they're they're like labels that are thrown on thrown onto items that say like you know this is not up for um this is not a commodity like this is not to be purchased this is not to be um shared uh, with other entities. And that actually changed the, um, the algorithms for the Library of Congress. And, and that was work done by, by, by Donald um, and something that is ongoing. And in terms of museums, there's also this software being, uh, that's really just new and, and up and coming called Mukertu, which works as a, it's developed by indigenous nations for indigenous nations and it works towards the sovereignty for data sovereignty for tribal nations where there is a public facing component in which the traditional knowledge labels are being used in that public facing but then there's also this private facing component where it's just for community members so if you really have um cultural material that that is, um, you know, sacred and, and is really only meant for community eyes or even for specific people in the community that can be, that can be used. <clears throat> but with that, again, it, it really falls back on political will and accountability from these institutions to take that initiative and build relationships with tribal nations um, to support that self-determination. And I think that is, again, something that, um, the Abbey Museum prioritizes within our uh, initiatives overall, and especially with collections. I mean, we stopped collecting and um, trying to find ways to make it more accessible to community members as well. Um, and then, of course, with all of our uh, exhibits and interpretive work, it's it's all done in collaboration with and for Wabanaki communities. So they're really um, controlling the 
the narratives and the stories in which are shared within uh, the spaces here. No, I'll go ahead, Maria. You're listening to Dawn Land Signals on WERU-FM. I am your co-host, Maria Gerard, along with co-host Esther Ann. Dawn Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we are talking about decolonizing museums with Nolan Ultivator, uh, Passamaquoddy Citizen, and Julia Gray, both of the Abbey Museum. I, I um, as you were talking, Nolan, I was thinking about how, when you said you're not, the Abbey isn't accepting collections anymore. And I know that the tribe, uh, Pleasant Point, Indian Township and Penobscot Nation have museums and I, I've donated things to those museums. And, and I wonder if there's any of that with the Abbey donating things to those museums. Yeah, and I think this is something that Julia can add on to um, as well over the time. But within my conversations with um, tribal historic preservation officers, they are definitely obviously wanting like that re repatriated uh, collection items returned to their to their museums. But at the same time, they're also dealing with um, a reality of how infrastructure works for tribal nations and a lot of the barriers that come with that. So a lot of times they might not even have like, you know, spaces to take care of these collection items and um, would rather sometimes prefer it to be held at the Abbey where they can come and view it or even in some cases find ways to um, have it brought into their community and then brought back to the Abbey. So I think that is definitely something that should be done when it is sensible and possible to do. And at the same time, helping tribal nations build their own infrastructures to be able to take care of these items um, in however they, they, they see plausible and fitting for their communities. Yeah, it's interesting. I had a really uh, eye-opening experience, I don't know, midway through my time at the Abbey where a large collection, primarily of Wabanaki baskets, was offered to the, to the Abbey Museum. Um, it was delivered, it came from actually from Unity College for a professor who had retired there. And um, we, we, it was, it wasn't all gonna, it was bigger than, it was bigger than would fit, you know, in the Abbey space. Um, and we knew that, that there was, there were, there were, there was a lot of overlap with baskets that were already in the collection. Um, and so we had, so reached out to the um, Penobscot and Passamaquoddy who were at that time had the, you know, had Donald and Jen Neptune who had physical spaces. And it was, the eye opener for me was to realize that there, that they had very few baskets in the tribal museums because baskets were made to be sold. Um, the vast majority of the baskets from, that was how people were making a living was to sell their baskets. So the baskets had left the communities. Um, and, you know, and here we were at the Abbey with 1400 baskets, um, most of which are in storage all the time, right? Most of which are not on exhibit. Uh, and to realize that, that in the tribal communities where the museums were most accessible to community members, that they had very few baskets because of just the nature, the economy of basket making. Um, and so to continue, and, and, and when people call, when people get into collecting something like baskets, they collect a lot of baskets. So oftentimes when a collection comes, you know, say we want to donate this to a museum, it's, it's, it's substantial. It's, it's a large number of things like a large number of baskets. So that was really fascinating. And then to continue to, to, uh, see how we can how the how 
museums like the Abbey or where I am now can um, support the development of the infrastructure within the communities to be able to, to hold and care for and steward more of these materials. And then in the meantime, what does it look like to provide a space and care for Wabanaki cultural objects um, while, maintain, while getting to a point where the control, the decision-making about how those are used, how they're interpreted, sits in Wabanaki hands. So, you know, they may physically be at the museum in Bar Harbor, but that decisions about who accesses them, what they say about them, how they're used and so on, um, can be in Wabanaki hands. Uh, and that, you know, how does that as an, as an aspect of, of acknowledging sovereignty over cultural material. What do you have for um, advisory elements um, with the Abbey Museum? Um, this the board of directors, and is there any sort of makeup that um, do you have like a a portion that requires to be native? Do you have an advisory group? What what sort of where? How do you get the input uh, from Wabanaki people into the Abbey Museum? Anyone? <laughs> so. Uh, starting no, no, it's been it's been a few years now. So the, there there are two governance bodies for the Abbey. There's the traditional board of trustees, which is you know recruited and elected for a variety of reasons, whether it's you know whether they have skill sets or knowledge or connections and so on. And then there and that's so that's kind of the traditional nonprofit board of trustees model. The goal was set, and I think is is has been exceeded of of parity on that board for Wabanaki people so that there be at least at least half if not more Wabanaki people represented on that board and I believe I know we were at one point there I think we still are the other um, entity is the Wabanaki council which started out as the native advisory council so there's that term advisory um, and it you know that that's a, that's of limited you know limited impact because advisory says we're going to advise you we don't have to do but so it's the decision making thing so Wabanaki council are um, appointed by their tribal governments, by their by their chief or their councils, um, so that there's an official. Um, they they are the official uh, delegates of their tribal community to um, guide the abbey and the work that the abbey does. Um, and there are two appointees from each of the communities, so that ends up with ten because there's the, each the decision was made through the process that each of the uh, Passamaquoddy communities would have would have delegates. There, the the process of how those two governing bodies interact, who does what, who whom, you know, that is an ongoing process. Certainly, I think it will be for a while. The council appoints from within themselves. They appoint uh, members to sit on the executive committee of the board of trustees, and the and one of the chairs of the board of trustees is appointed by the Wabanaki council. Um, so that's the current thing. And then and then on throughout operations, individual projects, exhibits, etc. Um, there are additional um, collaborations that provide feedback and input and oversight from Wabanaki folks with a particular knowledge set or experience or so on. So has there always been a Wabanaki presence on the Board of Trustees, even before this council was established? There was before the council was established. I believe that um, the first Wabanaki trustee at the Abbey was Ted Mitchell back in the 70s, maybe. Um, and it, it was periodic from there on. Um, 
and it was it was more often it was like there'd be an exhibit so there'd be an advisory group for the exhibit or something like that um, but there have been Wabanaki trustees off and on it was really in this in the last 10 years or so that that concerted effort was was taken to one you know what's a what's a what's a process that that truly represents sovereignty in terms of you know that official appointment by the by the communities by the nations um and then who you know what who else who else needs to be at the table in terms of on the traditional board of trustees so it's an it's an ongoing process and yet and it, and it has some time depth but not a ton of it now nolan you you in the beginning when you introduced yourself you said you're acting as curator at the abbey and I'd like to hear how how that's going, how your perspective is shaping what that role is and, and any plans that you have. Yeah, and that again, like, I don't know, sometimes like I was sitting with my grandmother the other day and she's she's actually Penobscot and we were talking and I was just catching up with her and telling her that I was working here at the museum. And she just looks at me and she says, um, she was like, wow, that must be really strange to work in a museum about your people. And, and I, that really just like opened my eyes to a lot of the um, internal, internal, uh, internal damages that, that these spaces can still sort of have an effect on the, um, I guess, psychosocial elements on indigenous people. And with that, I feel like putting myself in this confine of, you know, a curator of education, it, it really um, is a struggle to, it's a struggle for self-determination of like what that even looks like. Like, am I supposed to spend so much energy and time in developing programs that are, um, you know, to be honest that, are really just for educating the, the colonizers? Or should I spend time and energy, which is where my passion lays out about sort of finding ways that my position as a curator of education can um, help the self-determination and sovereignty of tribal nations or help um, native youth have opportunities to use this space to connect with uh, cultural materials and traditional knowledges. So it's really a struggle to find that balance and, and what that is looking like is both, you know, uh, working on, um, there is this, this side of the work where I'm, I'm working on a program that is tailored to um, the story of uh, tribal sovereignty through, uh, throughout the years, um, both pre-nation pre state of Maine um, when when we were under the uh, colonial power of the Commonwealth and what that has looked like in, in leading up to contemporary times with um, the recent legislation on LP 1626, uh, which is for, for tribal sovereignty. So working on a program that sort of goes through that story and um, applying a decolonial perspective on it of the big impacts and the big moments um, that have worked, that we're strategically working towards the erosion of tribal sovereignty. Um, so it's more of a history lesson for schools 
and adding a contemporary element of uh, sort of where does tribal sovereignty sit today for the Wabanaki people. Um, and then there's this more public, or sorry, then there's this more community facing elements um, which sort of step out of that role of curator of education um, where I am helping more communities in different areas, um, more through uh, film work, um, helping communities tell their stories through their own perspectives through, through film. Um, and that's been done through doing a story on the Emerald Ash Borer um, and the impacts that it has had on uh, our, uh, our ash trees, which are obviously a cultural significant um, relation of ours. Um, and then also just doing documentary work for, for events that are going on within the community. So it's, it's a struggle to not put my, myself in that box of curator of education and really focus on my accountability as a Passamaquoddy citizen and within my skill sets, what does that look like for the community rather than the museum? And I think that is a constant struggle and a constant thing that I reflect on and try to um, try to work out every day that I come here into the office. And, and, and even just that language, like just that lifestyle of that sort of colonial lifestyle of chaining yourself to to a desk to to behind a desk rather than recognizing the importance of um, intergenerational knowledge and having opportunities to connect with elders to connect with people in the community and i think that is actually something that the abbey museum um, the staff here is very lenient on they gave me a lot of uh, flexibility to travel and visit um, visit the Passamaquoddy and other tribal communities to develop those relationships and sort of naturally in, in you know, building those relationships and in, in dialogue with tribal members that leads to so many other things with the museum. Like just this past weekend, um, I was talking with Tony Sutton and we were, he's a Passamaquoddy um, tribal member and assistant professor at the University of Maine. And we were talking like, how can we develop a, a food sovereignty program here? So it's, 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 it's that process of finding that balance between being a curator of education, but also being a, a tribal member and struggling for that sort of self-determination of what that looks like. Yeah, and where are, and the council, Wabanaki Council must give you that support that you need to 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 keep having those uh, conversations with yourself about what what your role is and where you fit. Yeah, so I need to say that you are listening to Dawn Land Signals on WERU FM. I'm co-host Esther Ann along with Maria Gerard. Dawn Land Signals is a monthly talk show where we hold space for critical conversations of truth, healing, and change. And today we're talking about decolonizing museums with Nolan Altvader and Julia Gray from the Abbey. Nolan is a Passamaquoddy citizen and also a REACH board member. Um, I, I just wanted to say, uh, Nolan, when you were talking earlier and you mentioned that word accountability and and how much I appreciate, um, you know, the recognition of that term and, you know, as Native peoples out doing, doing work on behalf of our tribal communities, how important it is uh, to be accountable to the collective. And uh, I was glad to hear you use that term. 
And I think that Abby is very fortunate to have you. Yeah, and and, I, and it's really is like that, that accountability, like really is a constant process because, you know, and I think that's something that a lot of um, <clears throat> even indigenous led nonprofits or institutions struggle with is sort of working through the colonial framework of a, you know, a, of a nonprofit um, that really uh, values the um, values the the organization in an individual sense rather than a communal sense and trying to find ways to make the individual culture the communal culture and and that takes a lot of accountability and yeah like i think when it comes to my position here at the abbey um they've been very open to to recognizing that and allowing me to be accountable to my communities, but also recognizing that there is um, a lot of functions of this museum that aren't really facing that, you know, when it comes to more things like spending time and energy to um, doing education to non-native groups about about Wabanaki people, which is which is inevitably a part of the work. It's just more, um, you know, not overexerting yourself in that area to where you're you're burning yourself out because um, it's so easy to do that with these with these jobs and um, again it's just that constant process and balance of that being an educator and um, a uh, an indigenous citizen now julia you um your role has changed at the abbey over the years and uh, i'm interested to to know how in those different roles this this issue of accountability has has come up for you. Sure. So, I guess thinking about when I was uh, on staff, and again, that was largely working with collections and, to a certain extent, exhibits and education. Um, there were that was that was a, an area that the work around indigenizing and decolonizing had really gotten started. That was where it kind of started, and so there was there were and it, the developing the ability to, well, the ability, the capacity to be held accountable and have that be a learning experience, I think is something that non-Indigenous people in any work, but certainly in museum work face. Um, and was that was kind of my personal, um, I don't know, growth, growth sounds kind of cheesy, maybe, I don't know, but my, you know, learning how to go through that process of being called out um, um, and to learn from that and to, instead of, instead of, instead of, defending against that so that that on a, on a personal level accountability kind of felt like that um, and then to shift to my my brief stint as an interim director and and having to deal with the accountability in all kinds of complicated ways around financial accountability um, so that's another part of it is how you know how do we how are we accountable in terms of our finances and how is that shaped by the by the by sovereignty and by decolonizing work. And then as a trustee trying to work through this, you know, what is the, what's the, what's the decision-making um, relationship between the board and the council, Wabanaki council, and how are we, how, what are the checks and balances on that? Um, what does that kind of accountability look like? Um, and also just thinking about um, reflecting a little bit on, on Nolan's 
conversation, you know, Nolan sharing what it's like as a, as a Wabanaki person to do this work and how do we, we know that, that it, it's important to change the hearts and minds of non-Indigenous people um, and to provide education for them. But that work, uh, who, who, who does that work and what is the, there is, that work can be harmful to, for Indigenous people to constantly be doing that work. Um, we also know from in, interacting with non-Indigenous students and, and visitors that they, that they often learn and have that kind of emotional change that, you know, the, the emotional learning level when they are learning from Wabanaki people. Um, but that, you know, so how do we, how does that, how do you balance that in bringing that change about while not um, perpetuating harm to the Wabanaki people who are being asked to do that work? I think that's really important. And I don't know what that looks like. I think there's, it'll be exciting to see what kind of models for staffing and resources and so on develop to be able to do both of those things in ways that are in good relation in all directions. Great, thank you, Julia. Um, we're, we're beginning to um, take notice of the time and start thinking about shifting to, to closing the program, but I wanted to um, just offer space to you, Nolan, to see if you have any, um, you know, final, final words or any last thoughts that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, and I think building off of what Julia just said about being in good relation, you know, I think, you know, obviously within um, Wabanaki worldviews, sort of um, the Skijinaway Bumusuwagan, you know, the Skijin way of life is to be in good relation with all of creation. And, and I think that, you know, as like Wabanaki or as the people, like that is so um, ingrained in our teachings. But then, it, you know, thinking about that inevitability of like, being in good relation with all of creation, there is a non-Indigenous um, society out there who has uh, caused so much harm to, to our communities. So sort of what does that balance look like? And I think it's just, when it comes to that, you know, sort of what is the role of, of non-Native people in museums? And it's, it's, again, it just falls back on that being in good relation, even on their end, because, you know, they are, they're human beings as well. And with that, it takes recognizing that colonial violence and finding ways to reciprocally um, work uh, in good relations with indigenous tribes. And I think that is something that the museum here prioritizes um, being this sort of uh, cultural landscape of um, both indigenous and non-indigenous cultures working together. And I think it really does set precedent for other museums as well. And I'm excited to see where that goes in the future. Thank you. I really enjoyed this conversation. It feels so, so refreshing and so hopeful to uh, think of, you know, the, the institution of a museum uh, moving in this way. Um, as, as part of our program, Esther has um, chosen a poem that she wants to read as part of our closing. This poem is called Ancestors. It was originally published in uh, November 01 in the Tribal Newsletter. It's written by Mary Bassett. Ancestors. My feet feel so cold, so I keep wiggling my toes until the warmth returns. Bareheaded in the rain, wearing a plaid skirt over my jeans. I stare at the pieces of dry gra grass that float and flit in the brown puddles. 
A snake-like stream winds its way around the muddy hole in which two pine boxes have been lowered. The boxes, one-fourth the size of an adult coffin, are covered with a bright woven blanket. Women sing a chant while shaken rattles and beating drums in tune with the many pitched voices. They surround the unceremonious opening, gaping open wide as it swallows two of our ancestors who have been in museums. Their bones have been in match and cardboard boxes for 60 years. At last, these two women will rest in the brown soil of the earth in the land of the traditional summer camping place of the Passamaquoddy. Museum officials told the Tribal Repatriation Committee members that one of the women had been murdered. Her skull carried the imprint of a blunt object. Four females, the oldest and the youngest of those gathered, stand around the gravesite at the four directions, east, south, west, and north, praying and weeping silently. A fire blazes off to the right, tended by young people. The young men arrange the wood almost upright so that the fire can lick the moisture from its grain. The fire accepts the offering of food to the ancestors. They want so much and eat so little. Their spirits long to tell the lessons they have learned and unlearned from their experiences. They long to imbue us with humanity born from shedding inflicted hurts which stem and grow out of greed. Damp creeps into my clothes, clutching my last bit of skin heat. Yet I am warm as I sing with the women from Tobik, St. Mary's and Zibayag. We will work to return all the ancestors to the sacred ground. At last, we have a beginning. We will take our young to this site and tell the story of two women who were snatched from their graves, taken by strangers to be studied, to be analyzed, and then placed in museums and archives. Now, with unspoken prayer and a mood of sadness tinged with joy, their descendants surround the two women. Fear pervades the air with a question. Can they rest? assured that they will not be disturbed again. We are forgiving and haltingly rejoice at the first of our ancestors to return. From where does this serenity and accepting spring that allows the Wabanaki Nation people to forgive the Winuch? No anger, but sadness. No lament, but rejoicing. Yes, even humor. This is the fabric of our people. This has been our strength and sadly the undoing of our nation. Yet in the end, it is also the foundation, the core, and the bedrock of the values that we have sustained as a distinct people. I am proud to be part of the Wabanaki. Nothing will destroy us, not even our own who imitate the Wenuch. What we possess as we stand here in the rain and damp cannot be killed. Who we are cannot be contained in a museum. We are strong, we are kind, and we will never be broken. Tahoe. Thank you. Thank you, Nolan Ultimator. Thank you, Julia Gray, for joining us on, on Donland Signals. Uh, be sure to join us next Thursday. Uh, next, uh, excuse me, be sure to join us next month for more conversations of truth, healing, and change. Up, Chich. Up, Chich. Up, Chich. Thank you.